Bible. Let's just go straight to Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth, and he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. As we look at this moment in the life of Christ, I I think it's always very important when you're reading Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, to put yourself in the situation. We're here in a synagogue, the region of Galilee, and Christ, early in his ministry, he's going to heal this man with a withered hand. Here's what you're going to find in church. I can't mention it enough, uh, the importance of being in God's house on God's day. And here's what you find in Scripture. God's people, God's house, God's day, that's just habitual, and the church ought to be so deeply ingrained in you, there's nothing else to do that has a higher priority than being in God's house. I can't imagine being anywhere else. There's no place to put a smile on my face like God's house, God's day, God's people, God's word, God's Holy Spirit, godly music, and I, I love everything about church. I walk in, I, I love uh, the people, I love the platform, I, I love the piano, I, I love hearing from God's word, I love the special music, I just love it, and I can't understand anyone that has to wake up in the morning and flip a quarter and say, today am I going to be in God's place or am I going to be doing something else? And here's a man that had a million excuses not to be in God's house, and let me just tell you, every Sunday you will have an excuse, why not? Uh, and if you don't have an excuse, uh, you'll, you'll find, you know, I, I think possibly my throat is a little scratchy, my, my headache, I think I can feel it coming on. I, I think if I wait here long enough, I, I feel it coming on. You know, folks, I, I feel pity. I feel pity for the person. You say, well, uh, Pastor, I have other excuses. It's not personal problems. It's the hypocrites that go. Join the crowd. Amen. Why wouldn't you want a hypocrite at God's house getting the devil preached out of him anyways? Would you want a hypocrite sitting at home where he's not having any of his sins preached against? You might as well have him in God's house. I'll say, Pastor, you offer a few more excuses around here. The parking lot's too small. The walk is too far. And the, uh, the seating is too close. And you know what? At some point, uh, any obstacle in your way, when you have a heart for God and the things of God... Uh, there's no obstacle too great. But I do. I pity those people who, who literally look for excuses. That's a heart problem. And the best way to solve that heart problem, number one, is to get born again. When you get born again, there's something that radically changes in your heart. and You'll have a desire to be in God's house. Uh, but then if you get right with God after you're born again, amen, you, you'll be surprised 
Hey, you don't find pleasure in God's house. Uh, just, just try to hear from God one Sunday and then walk the aisle and get on your face before God and say, God, I need some changes here. I got some problems here. I, I need you to do some drastic work in my spiritual life. You might be shocked at the next service time that your desire has changed. I do as a pastor. I see the crowd and I, I, I pity the poor bloke that comes to church miserable. That, can you imagine an hour and a half? I've been in places where, where 30 minutes seem like five days. <laughs> and if that's the way you feel in God's house, I, I do. I, I pity that person uh, because it's my favorite place on the whole planet. And you find Christ here and uh, exactly where he wanted to be. And here's a man with a withered hand. Now, I don't... I don't know, you know, when you're a preacher and you study and you read commentaries and you read historical background. Here's what I don't want to do. I never want to confuse Jewish history with Bible. God's Word doesn't always give us the details. You've got to be careful about filling in the details where God does not. I never take, I don't care if it's the works of Josephus or any other Jewish historian, I never take that as biblical fact. Oh, you may, may give you a little bit of context concerning the times. And I, I've read several putting the context of the times that Herod, when he would, I know the temple at that time was called Herod's temple. He actually rebuilt the temple. That was God's temple, not Herod's temple. Amen. God used Herod to rebuild it. But the amazing project, the work was done. But Herod, in his search for masons and stone layers, came to the conclusion that the best stone layers of the day were actually Jews in the region. He hired 257 of them. And at some point, Herod was convinced that he was going to die prematurely. And so he went to the high priest and convinced him to make an exception there in sabbatical law to allow them to work on the Sabbath in the reconstruction of the temple. Uh, then... Uh, when it came to Herod, you've got to understand, we talk about Herod, we talk in a general way. It wasn't all one man. It was fathers, sons, uncles. Uh, but in, in the rebuilding there of, of Herod's palace and fortress, uh, once again, he used those uh, masons and got permission for them to work on the Sabbath. Well, at the dedication, the recognition of these men, these stone layers, uh, you want to talk about mixed emotion, good day, bad day. One minute you're being recognized, and then you have the high priest stand up and say, well, what was done for the temple, we'll accept that uh, exclusion, but what was done for the Romans must be punished. Then they took those 257 masons who had worked in the rebuilding of that fortress, and they smashed their right hands and said, you'll never work another day in masonry again because what you did. They permanently separated those families. They took those children and, and plucked their eyes out. What, what those men endured afterward as a result is unspeakable. But those men then went back to their hometowns. And what they had to do when they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, they had red cloth tied around their hands uh, to separate from the others. Instead of facing with the crowd, the speaker, they had to face the north. And then every single Saturday, you got to understand decades have passed since those men had suffered uh, the consequences and the atrocities. 
in the separation from their family. They're in total isolation, ostracized from their communities. No one could speak to them, especially not in the temple. And uh, the priest would stand up and say, pointing to those men, uh, this is the result of having broken the laws of the Sabbath. Can you imagine having gone through that for decades? Now, many historians say that this was one of those masons. The withered hand, now obviously scripture, it was his right, right hand is mentioned in Luke, but the withered hand means at some point his hand was normal, it was functional, and at this point in his life, it no longer was. We don't know the circumstances, but can you imagine if this was one of those masons, it, it doesn't increase their hatred for Christ because they already, you, we'll see that in just a minute. You want to talk about a profound, deep, absolute madness that they had in their hatred for Christ as they follow around from place to place, synagogue to synagogue, seeking to, to trap him, finding reasons to want to kill him. But can you imagine if this man were one of those Masons and you've endured this kind of suffering for 20 years, isolation, separation, the inability to work in weekly humiliation, and Christ comes in and Look at verse 2, they watched him. Now, we understand by the other context, I love the Gospels, the four Gospels, because they so complement each other. Matthew, Luke also, uh, we'll we'll turn to Luke 6 in just a minute, uh, the sister story to this text. They speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes, and here's what they did. They're just sitting back, and let me me explain once again. Uh, there are hypocrites in any congregation. You say, I want to find a church without a hypocrite. Don't go. Because all of us have a touch of hypocritical behavior in our lives. Uh, as long as you have a flash there, there are things you say, no, not me. I'm, I'm as pure as the driven snow. If you grow in Colorado, you, you know there's no pure as the driven snow. It all comes with a tin of gray doesn't take long till that purity is gone. And they're hypocrites. And here's what's crazy. As a pastor, occasionally you run across someone that says that is their excuse for not attending church. It's amazing to go to the supermarket and a lot of hypocrites there and they don't mind that. And they never quit at work because they're hypocrites on the job. They never stop going to family reunions because there's hypocrites in their family. And family's 24-7 and and grocery shopping uh, for most or shopping is more than once a week. And a job is 40 hours. They have no problem spending 40 hours with hypocrites. But a couple hours a week would be too difficult to bear. Amen. And once again, let me just reiterate. If hypocrites are going to go anywhere, you want them to go to church. Amen. Where the Bible's preached. And at least at some point they have the opportunity to come under conviction. Why would it be quiet in Capital City Baptist Church at that, that kind of comment? But, but here they are, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, when you read Scripture, what you want to do, and we, we get in too much of a hurry, don't read Scripture to mark it off your list and say, I have my daily devotions. You ought to read with intention of hearing from God. But take time and look at every single sentence and phrase in the Scripture. They watched him. Now, imagine this. They're literally in the, in the presence of God in the flesh. 
Jesus Christ with God in the flesh. Now, they should have come to realize this because he's already performing miracles. And someone that's performing these kind of miracles ought to be recognized as God. Who else is doing this? This is something that is impossible. You speak the word and people are being healed. And here's why they are there. They are there. They're saying, we're going to watch him because he's probably going to perform a miracle. That wicked, evil, vile man. Someone here that needs healed is going to get healed today. And we're going to keep an eye on that stuff. Isn't it amazing the absolute blindness of hypocrisy? If that man tries to do something good to someone that's suffering, we got to shut that down. If someone's hurting and they're healed, that's vile behavior. And we're going to be the policemen of this synagogue. I, I mean, literally, they are, when, when we say watch, how many ever felt like you're being watched? It, it's, this was Christ, three and a half years of ministry. Everywhere he went, they're simply there to watch him. We're, now, you watch your children. I, I love, these are my favorite moments in, in all the church. I've got the gift of making people uncomfortable, and I've got the gift of enjoying it when I make people uncomfortable. But I love those moments when I could pull the three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds up on the platform and ask them a few questions. You say, Pastor, you're a master manipulator. You know what to ask them just to get them to say something that's embarrassing. Maybe. <laughs> Guilty. But I love when those kids appear, everyone else can enjoy it except the parent. And the parent is back there like they can actually read your lips. They don't listen to you when they can hear you talk. But mom's back there threatening them. Don't you say that. Don't you. They're watching them. Because they don't want them to make a misstep. They don't want to be embarrassed. Now, this was watching on a different level. This is watching because we know you're going to do good and we hate the good that you're doing. It, it's phenomenal to think this crowd is following Christ around. The Pharisees and scribes, they're just watching. And in every church, there's a group like that, just watching how the ministries are run, just watching the Sunday school teach, just, just waiting for something that can be criticized. You say, boy, that person has a, a bad spirit. Put it in the context of a Pharisee. Don't let that disturb you. Amen? They watched him. Why are they watching? Look at the next phrase. Whether he would, oh, wait a minute. Whether he would heal. Not, not whether or not a curse word would slip out of his mouth. A mistake would be made. False doctrine would be preached. How many of you ever been with someone? I, I love being with new Christians. You know, you're in a discipleship setting and, and a, a curse word slips out. I hate the blankety devil. Well, I wouldn't use that word, but amen, so do I. <laughs> they don't think for a second, they don't think for a second that a curse word's going to slip out of his mouth or that they're, they're waiting. If he heals, oh yeah, we got some people here that need healing. If he heals, and if this was one of those Masons, 
uh, that had been ostracized. I guarantee you they said, oh, oh boy, surely he won't take the misstep of healing that man because he deserves to live humiliated and ostracized for the rest of his life. He shouldn't be able to get up. Nothing, nothing like a Pharisee that says, that man should never have the mercy of God where he's allowed to get up. He ought to pay for that mistake for the rest of his lowly life. Those are the kind of Christians, listen, if you ever sat two seats over from someone at church, that ought to be the Pharisee with that kind of spirit. You say, Cap City didn't allow me that privilege. <laughs> Change robes, amen. They, and, if, and if this in this church you're sitting all by yourself in a row, that makes us really, really, really suspicious. They were watching whether he would heal them on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And, and, and here's what, go with me to Luke 6 for just a minute. Keep your finger here because we'll, we'll come right back. Here's what Luke 6 verse 8 in the sister story says that they might find, verse 7, an accusation against him. Look what verse 8 says. But he knew their thoughts. You know what? God knows all of your thoughts. That woman you're sitting next to that said, I do, and has stuck with you for 20 years, you know why she stuck with you? She doesn't know your thoughts. Christ knew all those evil things that were going through their minds, the hatred, the vile hatred. Listen, they didn't hate him because of the healing. They hated him way before that. They had to make a choice here. Accept who he said he was. And when he revealed himself in, in the synagogue and said back in Scripture, I'm the Messiah that's been promised. Immediately their hearts were filled with hatred because they either had to accept that or reject him. Obviously, they were choosing the path of continual rejection, but they were just waiting that they might accuse him. Now, think about this. So he's going to heal the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Think about what kind of effort and energy. We know some of the sabbatical laws. But when you think about this, he's going to speak the word. He's not going to touch him. He's actually not going to disobey any of the Jewish laws concerning the Sabbath. Only their additional laws that they had inserted in between the lines. He literally stands there. He sees the man. He tells him to stand. I love this. He's going to bring, he interrupts his own service. At graduation the other night, one of the only nights during the whole year, we don't have nursery. And and when we have interruptions in a service, your pastor's blood pressure goes a little higher than it probably should. You say, Pastor, you have blood pressure problems? Not, not any until we have interruptions in church. I mean, I was just sitting there thinking, oh, thank God that we had nursery. Thank God for the nursery workers. Thank God for, I want to avoid interruption. Here's what Christ did. He fabricated his own interruption. 
And right in the middle of the, the teaching, right in the middle of the message, he could have waited until afterwards and pulled him aside and healed him. But he said, no, I'm going. Here's what he was doing. He was confronting the pharisaical attitude of the crowd that was present, and he wants to deal with it publicly. Yes, he's going to heal him. And yes, he's going to help him. He could have done this in a million different ways. But he said, the real issue here in this place is not the withered hand. And, and let me tell you right now, there's some people sitting here this morning with a withered hand. We talk about tithing, you've got a withered hand. I try to participate, but talk about mission, you've got a withered hand. We talk about sowing on Saturday. I'd pass out a track, Pastor Bud. Yeah, we know, you've got a withered hand. You haven't participated in nothing for... Amen, that's not the message. That's, it's just additional commentary this morning. There, there's, there's some church members with withered hands, but really that's not what hinders the church. And I believe God can heal that. For those of you that got a withered hand, I'm going to keep preaching and praying until God heals you. <laughs> Amen. But here's what he's, he's doing. Can you see the bigger picture in this text and context is not the man with the withered hand. He's going to use this to address the larger problem, which is the withered heart. That that hardened heart that just says, we don't care about people, we care about laws, we don't care about someone getting better, getting help, or being healed. What we care about is on the Sabbath day, you come withered, you leave withered. And if someone tries to heal you, we'll shut that down. How sad, how sick. That's religion without Christ. That's ritual without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's going through a performance without understanding the purpose of church and the purpose of God and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, help us to avoid that. So he's going to interrupt the service and right there, I, I, I don't know, maybe heaven won't answer these questions, but I sure hope it was one of those Masons, one of those men that was ostracized, one of those people they just love to hate on and ignore and had him stand up and there he stands with that messed up, smashed up, mashed up hand. His life's about ready to change. He's going to become, he's going to move from dysfunctional, non-functional to functional, ostracized, to accepted. Everything's about ready to change in a moment. And they should have, now let me ask you this. Why wouldn't you be happy that someone's life is going to change for the better? You would think this would be a cause for celebration. You would think there'd be a lion there to hug his neck and, and help him celebrate and say, wow, amazing, fantastic, praise the Lord. No, not this crowd. They're just waiting. Uh, I keep an eye on both of them. Where's that man with the withered hand? I know he's around here somewhere. Jesus, we'll see what he does. And right in the middle of the service, he says, go ahead and stand up. Stand up. Now, this wasn't just to verify the miracle. You know, there's a lot of people in denial about what God does, what God can do. When God does a miracle in your heart and life, you, you need to take your kids and let them see it firsthand. This is what God did for us. This is the financial miracle that God provided for us. 
This is spiritual work that God did in our home. They, they need to see that visibly. But so it's, it goes beyond the visible presentation of, look, there's the, weather, the withered hand. But he's also calling them out because how can you not look at a man whose hand is all matched up and messed up and God's going to heal it? How can you not be excited about that? He's going to say, those people are so cold, so calloused that they don't even care that this hand went from this to this. How is it we can be so cold and so calloused in Christianity that we're not celebrating a life? That man used to be a drunk. He used to be a drug addict. That, that family was having all kinds of issues. There was divorce that they were going through. Look what God has done. Everyone, you know Christianity ought to be about rejoicing together over the miracles of God and what he's doing in hearts and lives. And instead of looking at the imperfections in people saying, look what God is doing. Look what God has done there. Amen? Amen. Cap City, help us be so far beyond any kind of that hypocritical, pharisaical spirit. They're sitting there just watching for a problem, watching for a defect. And he has them stand up. And then he says, stretch forth thine hand. He stretches it. Can you imagine? I, I think, even if he was Baptist and not Pentecostal, I think a small amen slipped out of his lips. <laughs> Just a, a minor hallelujah. May, maybe a faint praise the Lord. Now, not emotional or emotional. He probably still went, yeah, wow. Whoa, look at that. He's in the middle of the synagogue, and I know there are Pharisees looking at him, but I imagine there was some kind of emotional display when you go from his situation I, I think sometimes we think withered hand, you're just saying, okay, his pinky got cramped up for a couple days. No, no, we're talking about a man that could not work, could not function, could not provide for his family. Suddenly, his life is normal. You know how you can tell Pharisee? Some, someone gets saved, someone has something happen, a kid gets uh, changed, a, a prodigal comes home, their child gets baptized, and... And you, you know some Pharisees. I don't think he went all the way under the water when he got baptized. <laughs> Pastor, he put his hand on the glass. It don't count. Yeah, you got that crowd. Verse 3, he saith unto the man, which had the withered hand. He's just, he's just Christ has just committed the crime of healing. Now, let me just say this. When, when he says stand forth and stretch forth, Christ is confronting, verse 4, he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he, Christ, had looked round about, just like a pastor does on the platform, takes a look. Now, there are days I wear my glasses, there are days I don't. There are days I can see about six, seven, eight rows back. And after that, faces just kind of get fuzzy. I, I laugh that, you know, at the back half of the congregation, usually the most guilty half of the congregation. I, you know, you just have to throw that in there somewhere. They're just trying to get out of the eyesight of the pastor. But I have some said, Pastor, you were looking at me. I'm like, you're on the back row. I can't even see you. 
did I have my glasses on? Why do you so? I think, I think you need to confess something because that's a guilty conscience right there. You think pastor was staring at you from the platform. But he looked around about on them. But, he, but here's, let me ask you this. Look at the questions that are asked in verse 4. He said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? I love the next phrase. To save life or to kill. Now, why would he, why would you throw in killing on the Sabbath? Come on. If, if I said, what, you know, you guys, is it a good thing to tithe or do you just want to kill someone on a Sunday morning? You're like, pastor, what? Come on. You, you look at us like killers. What kind of accusation is that? I may have a grumpy face, but I didn't come in here to hurt anyone. And now you're talking about murder? Now, hold on for a second. He's calling them out. Because we're going to read in a minute. Their intention was literally to kill him. Now, you want to talk about hypocrisy on the highest level. They're saying, they're angered. They're full of madness. They're saying, what kind of ungodliness is that? You're going to come in here and heal someone on the Sabbath? We got to do something about that. I mean, the man walks in with a withered hand. He walks out with a healed hand. You are a criminal. We're going to have to punish that. I think we need to kill you on the Sabbath. Do you see the hypocrisy? You can't help, but we can plot your death. You can't make a man's life better or we'll take your life. The, the absolute blindness. Now, here's the problem with hypocrisy. Let me ask you this. When you read the scriptures, who was always in the service? Scribes and Pharisees. Who heard more sermons? These are people, you know what a scribe and Pharisee, you know what a Pharisee is, a true-blown Pharisee? Some of the light never comes on. Now, blindness is a natural part of human nature without Christ. When, when the light of the glorious gospel comes in, it turns on some lights. Your understanding is enlightened. You, you see things that you've never seen before. But the problem with the Pharisee, they can sit in all the services that they want to. They can hear all the messages and listen to all the scripture, but they never get it. They never understand it. The truth never sinks into their heart. And regrettably, I know people that have been in church for years. Never passed out a track. Never truly loved anyone enough to help them. Carry the Bible, know the verses. But a heart of compassion? No, it's a heart that is hardened. Instead of softened to love and to help and to weep and to comfort. Just like the Pharisees. Come and they see the same crowd. But it's Christ who reaches out in compassion. It is the Pharisees who are angered with the display of compassion. Church, you ought to ask yourself, what category do I fall into? Go, go with me to Matthew 12 for just a minute. In this same story, we find some of Christ's additional comments recorded. This is important. Look what it says in Matthew 12, verse 11. No, go back to verse 10, put it in the context. Behold, there was a man with had his hand withered, they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him? We understand the same context. Verse 11, he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? He said, Hold on for a second. 
So you guys have animals. And your sheep falls into a ditch or pit. And you're going to say, no, I think I'll come back and, and take care of that tomorrow. No. You understand there's an exclusion here. There's an exception here. And we're talking about an animal. Now hold on for a second. What's it say in the next verse? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Here's the hypocrisy. You have people down there that are, that are protesting. Protesting the thought of not having the right to murder their baby. But if a cat's mistreated, do you not see the hypocrisy? It's amazing when something like that is actually disturbing to people sitting in a church pew in 2022. If you don't understand the value of human life over animal life, you're an animal. Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath day? Here's what Christ said. How hypocritical to say you would save a sheep, but you're mad at me for saving a man with a withered hand. It's hypocrisy. Now, church, here's what we're addressing, and, and we're going to talk about this later this evening. Christ's response was this, verse 5. When he had looked right about on them with anger. Uh, yeah, I've never seen any paintings of Christ like this. We see the paintings, you know, at the Last Supper, right. and, and John leaning on his breast, and him handing the sop to Judas, and all tranquility, you know, as they're sitting around. Last Supper, or you see him with the shepherd's staff and the sheep, or the kids on his lap, yeah. right? Those are normally the... You don't see any pictures of him here in the synagogue. And he is angry. And he's looking at this crowd, with, and he's grieved. Now, the anger was temporary. The grief was permanent. He is constantly grieved with these people. But at this moment in the scripture, you see the rare moment where God actually highlights he is upset. If God highlights his anger, now what is this about? What are you angry over? I've seen parents angry. The kids, you know, they're, they're at a big get-together and the child's carrying a cup and he drops it. And a parent is angry. That parent's never got angry at the disobedience of that child. That child look at grandma and grandpa and say, no, and parents never get angry. But he drops a cup in a public place. Parents, that's not time to be angry. Christ was angry uniquely in this circumstance, and you look in all the Gospels for a moment when Christ is angry. You say, purging the temple. You know what? The only thing that we see a display of anger in all the Scripture is when he's dealing with hypocritical behavior. The cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the synagogue, the healing of the man with a withered hand. God gets angry. Christ gets angry at hypocritical behavior. Now, what is hypocritical behavior? I'm going through spiritual motions without a compassionate heart that looks at the individual with loving kindness. Because that same grace, that same love that was bestowed upon you at salvation is supposed to be displayed. It's supposed to be natural 
coming out of the heart in church. When people walk through our doors, they ought to say, I mean, this is the most loving, kind-hearted, caring. There's a few weird birds. It's a strange collection of fruits and nuts. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of compassion in that place. And if there's not a lot of compassion, I believe that God still looks with anger and grief because of what? What's it saying? The hardness of their hearts. If there is no compassion in your heart, that means God's identified hardness in your hearts. And there's some kind of activity. You know, you, you take someone out there that's a, it's a mason or a carpenter, and you shake their hand, you feel the callousness because they're doing something on a daily basis that is creating a calloused hand. Then, then you take someone that's blind, and, and they've got to read Braille, and they got to do it with their fingers. You know, the fingers are very sense, soft and sensitive. They're doing something that creates additional sensitivity. I'm just saying there's something in your daily activity or routine that's creating sensitivity or callousness. You know, there are people that are in their daily routine creating spiritual, desensitizing themselves. They're creating a spiritual callousness, a hardness of heart. And instead of reaching out to people and loving people and caring for people and with great kindness, now look what happens. He says... As he's grieved, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored, holds the other. And the Pharisees, now look at this. We're going to read this. Be done. Look what it says, verse 6. Everyone focus on verse 6. The Pharisees went forth and what? Straight. I'm talking about the immediate reaction was what? Took counsel with the Herodians. Now hold on for a second. Religious people hate God's work. Don't let that ever surprise you. Religious rituals do not make you a better person. A heart for God, a heart of kindness, a heart of compassion makes you a better person. These were the most supposed spiritual people of their day, and they're truly the most evil people of their day. They run out, they gather the Herodians, and this crowd always has a group, a mob a clan, how they might what? Now, go with me to Luke 6 and we're done. They want his what? Now, now think of his crime. What's his crime again? He heals a man of his devastating uh, problem, his withered hand that's affected his whole life. So their hatred is so great, they want to destroy him. Now look what it says in verse uh, 11. They were what? Filled with what? (laughs) Blows my mind. God never exaggerates in his scripture. This is God knowing the heart of man. He said these people were literally, this was Thanksgiving Day. I mean, it was 2 o'clock. And you thought, I mean, you're almost sick. But you walk back by the pumpkin pie and you put whipped cream on there. And while you're getting pumpkin pie, you saw uh, one more dessert that just had to go on your plate. There was no room. But you thought, just past my tonsils, I got a little space. 
and that place for pumpkin pie, and you ate it, and then you sat down, and you weren't sick. Well, you know why? You were absolutely filled. Here's what God said. There wasn't a touch of madness. I mean, they were filled. They're about ready to explode with madness. You know why? He healed a man. It's just more revelation of who he was. The compassionate, loving, kind, gracious son of God who understood the purpose of the Sabbath was to go and help. And folks, this is a hospital and everyone in here needs healing. Every Forget the tie, forget the suit, forget the combed hair, forget the fancy dress. There is not a single person in here that doesn't need help in healing. And if you have God and not religion, you know you have compassion to say, let's reach out, let's help, let's love, let's lift up. And if you're a Pharisee, you're just waiting for someone to have a good day or a miracle or change life. So you can criticize, I don't think he meant it. I've sniffed out repentance before and he don't got it. <laughs> People that sniff out repentance. I'm like, Bozo, you need to go repent of your sniffer. <laughs> there's, there's a problem in Christianity. And let me ask you this, because we're going to talk about right to anger tonight. Let me ask you this. What made Christ so mad? That hardens the heart, eliminates the compassion that makes Christianity and all the rest a simple ritual. In church, I hate to say it. But all of us have a touch of hypocrisy in our hearts. And we got to say, if God hates anything in my life, it's that hypocrisy that if I'm not careful, I'll allow out to grow. And I want to make sure that I'm a loving, kind, caring, compassionate Christian who says, this is about people getting help. This isn't finding ways to hurt them. You know what the ultimate heart test is? We didn't talk about salvation this morning, but certainly there are people in here who need to get saved today. The ultimate test of, of the heart is how you respond to Christ. You know what they didn't do? The hypocrites refused to respond. Every time they sat and heard him preach, instead of repenting and coming to Christ and accepting him as the Messiah, they simply claimed to be okay and habitually rejected him. That puts you in a bad category. And the first way to leave that category this morning is respond to the word of Christ and say, I need to get born again. But church, for the rest of the majority that are here this morning, that are born again Christians, here's what you want to do. You want to come, don't, don't just take it for granted and say, oh no, I have no hypocrisy in my heart. Okay, when was the last time there was a true, heartfelt, Christ-like act of compassion towards someone that had a withered hand? It's not measured by the fact you showed up to church with a suit and a tie. It's measured by how you respond to those in true need. And normally the Christian response is to the man with a withered hand, I can't help you because I got a withered hand too. 